The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I, of course, am your host, Tyler, who is just going to keep getting more and more excited until sometime I explode on air. We're getting close to the explosion, let's be real. I, of course, am joined by Greg, who is probably a little bit excited, but mostly just so he can know what in the world the name of his podcast is. Uh, Greg <laughs> just messaged in the Zoom chat, sexual, which <laughs> is all that he says to anything that I can say these days. Greg, feel free to contradict anything I've said as a DM. It's apparently your job. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So um, uh, our DM, our, our Dungeons and Dragons group has recently made me note taker, which is just the biggest mistake in the world. And last session, what that did is took Tyler, anything vaguely sexual Tyler said and made a joke of it. Uh, so uh, when he said he's about ready to explode, I had to continue the joke. Yeah. Uh, gosh, welcome to Through the Glass Columns. What a note to start on. If you've survived that introduction, let me say, Tyler, um, I live my life not falling into cliches. So I have a number of identities that I think can become cliches. I'm a Star Wars fan. I can become the cliche of mm -hmm. lecturing people about the secret genius of The Last Jedi or why they're underestimating uh, the value of the prequels or what have you. And I don't fall into that cliche. Or I'm a college professor and could ramble on and bore anybody. And I don't fall into that cliche. But I will say tonight, which we will reveal is as we record Super Bowl Sunday, when I said, no, no, dear wife, I'm going to the basement to talk about fantasy books with my nerd friend. I fall squarely into the realm of cliche and could not be more happy to do so. So I'm happy to be here, yep. not watching sports ball, but it was a very funny thing uh, to announce to the missus. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say the only thing that was competing for my possible plans this evening was potentially going to see a zone of interest on an itty bitty tiny screen. So uh, football, not on the list, even a little bit. Um, but I think we actually had two pretty exciting chapters this week. Um, Deceptions and Into the Ways both felt like they did the same kind of mechanical work of moving the plot forward that we've kind of just been describing as kind of by rote at the beginning of every one of these books. But I felt like they each had one or two kind of key interesting moments that kept me kind of excited throughout them, as opposed to in earlier books when sometimes it was kind of like, yeah, we got those chapters done. I didn't quite feel that this way. How are you feeling about the pace of this book, which... I might describe as better, but still slower than you might hope for in a, in a fantasy novel. Yeah, I mean, I made a lot of jokes last episode about how it's like 
tomorrow's the day everything will happen one day more and saying lame is to our, our dear listeners and so i'm ready for it to be the next day and it's like kind of the next day right like yeah. we still didn't really click into now things are really moving moving that's probably particularly true of the first chapter more than the second chapter which did actually get characters moving literally yeah. and figuratively um so i think i was a little more excited about um that movement starting to occur um uh -huh. but i i do think there were some tidbits i guess is is what you just said of information here that kind of made it sparkle a little bit more and, and i think we'll enliven our conversation yeah, Sparkle is really all that we can ask for in this series because it's a little dark sometimes. So yeah, let's get to the fun bits of Chapter 17, Deceptions. So we begin with Tom exhausted. He's been entertaining the servants, and it's clear that he is trying to start rumors, basically putting the blame for the attack on some of the High Lords while also kind of praising Rand and keeping uh, him kind of positively viewed among all of the servants. Um, he, at one point, is almost kind of brought into the action by the Majer, who tells him that uh, if he's idle, he will be put to work, and uh, Tom's kind of reaction to the idea of a hard day's work is exactly what I wanted it to be. At this point, Tom makes his way back to his uh, apartment where he finds Moraine there. She is kind of clearly and openly going through his papers. And at this point, um, they kind of start talking in not quite code, but not quite directly addressing a number of different topics. First off, she brings up the death of one High Lord in the injury of another and kind of implies that this could potentially be a result of Tom's interference it was, we know from a previous chapter. Um, we also get her um, kind of suggesting she knows who he once was, describing his past with Morgays, the possibility that Tom, this wasn't the first time he'd killed a king. That gets brought up briefly. Um, and then Tom tries to kind of respond by pushing back and saying Moraine must be part of kind of some sort of conspiracy. She must have people at the tower who are working with her. He threatens to uh, kind of expose her and overthrow any issues that she has. Has. But at this point, she first assures him that he can go to Tanchico and will not be harmed there and says that she knows this and can say it truthfully under the first oath. And then she also says um, that he can help Elaine, which seems to pull at something, and then also suggests that she will give him the names of any of the Red Aja who were involved in Owen, his uh, nephew's disappearance. All of that together causes Tom to feel more or less trapped, and he kind of gives up Moraine has won this round. We then jump into Min's point of view. She is lamenting her dresses and the fact that Laris has been looking after her. At this point, Gawain and Galad both uh, begin talking to her. It's clear that Galad still doesn't know who she is, and she is playing the part of being just a ditzy girl um, kind of shockingly well, all told. We learn that Galad has started learning a book by the creator of the White Cloaks, and later on in the section we learn that it was actually given to him by one of the leaders of the White Cloaks, who we had met before, Eamon Valda. Um, we also um, get a note that as he is walking by, Min uh, sees Loghain, and in doing so, sees a glowing halo around him that she interprets means both power and glory in his future, not his past. At this point, she kind of makes her excuses, tries to get away. She's able to ditch Galad, but not Gawain, who makes her promise that she is going to uh, tell him if she learns anything about Egwene or Elaine. And it's clear that to both 
both of them that it's not obvious which of those two names Gowan is more concerned about, which is interesting given that he is sworn to Elaine and has seemingly no real connection with Egwene. Um, once uh, Min makes her way up to the Merlin study, the Merlin is immediately upset. She gives the information about Loghain, and the Merlin's response is basically, no, you cannot leave. And two, uh, this information isn't valuable to me at all, and then lists all of the other crazy, horrible things that are going on in the world. Once again, we get a list of problems, which is always a fun thing to have in the middle of a book. And then uh, we get the arrival of two messages. Um, the first of them says that one of the false dragons, Mazrun Tayyim, has escaped. And uh, the Merlin orders a dozen Aes Sedai sent, as well as a thousand soldiers, despite any possible risk. The second note suggests that Rand has taken the Stone of Tear, and Suan basically announces that she is now going to be open with her plans. She can now basically make it uh, known to at least the Hall of the Tower that she has someone uh, in contact with the dragon, uh, but it needs to still be kept secret who, it, or I'm sorry, when the Merlin got this information. Information. Um, finally, we jump into the POV of Sarah Coventry, who delivered a kind of harmless note to Elmendreda in a previous chapter. She is working on a farm when someone asks after her and then seemingly begins to torture her, trying to get information. All she can remember is that Galad talked to Elmendreda and then everyone seemingly dies. That's a pretty dark way to end a chapter, but probably not what we're going to spend most of our time discussing. Um, what did you make of Deceptions, which had some kind of unusual character pairings or characters that we don't normally see getting lots of POV finally getting the spotlight? What was kind of the most exciting piece of that for you? <laughs> well, you just uh, derailed what I was going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is the the main thing I have in my notes is stop trying to make Gallad and Gawain a thing. <laughs> I'm so sick of these guys because they're just so boring. And yeah. um, and this seemed clear like they were a, like, don't forget these guys exist. And I, I really assume it'll be another book or two and then they'll really come into the center of the story so that we just need these little timely reminders yeah. that they exist and, and continue to be with the Aes Sedai. Um, so most interesting part, I think the conversation between Tom and Moraine was probably the standout of this chapter for me and, and the mm -hmm. men uh, much less so. I, I think maybe I understood the literal events of what was going on with the Amerlin seat, but maybe not the symbolic resonances of why those events and choices were important, which maybe yeah. we can explicate a bit. But um, uh, to keep things somewhat vague, uh, we are resonating pretty nicely with some recent television episodes that we may or may not have watched in preparation for some episodes we may or may not be creating. So um, it's always curious when those kind of resonances happen um, yeah. because everything in the television show has been jumbled and reordered and restructured, but usually is true to the facts of the book, even if, you know, there's yeah. there's some changes there. Um and yet, while I like when that happens, it also makes me go just a little bit cross-eyed because I'm like, yeah. wait, which version am I thinking about? And how did these, uh, you know, overlap? And like, oh, if I'm thinking of that character, has that kind of... So um, the book fact I'm talking about here, just to, to try yeah. to give it some kind of concrete grounding, is the fact that Moraine is from Carhain and has Kyrian. a family. Ky Kyrian. And has a family there. 
Um, and we have not learned that in the books. Right. Yeah, we, we had her last name and noted, I think, once or twice that it was the same as the last name of some important people in Kyrian. But this is the most specific we've gotten about those relationships. And so the television show does not make that a mystery, really, or it, right. it's it enters into it much more early. So for me, I was like in this moment, I was like, oh, that's actually really cool that Tom would know that. And it's just now being revealed. But then I was like, wait, but is it just being revealed? And it's yeah. kind of I can twist myself in knots thinking about. It. But I what I liked about the conversation was that the two of them were like they're the serious people. None no. of the boys are really that serious. So it's like, okay, we're the serious people. We know what's going on. Let's have a real talk about kind of the things that matter instead of crushes and things like that. Yeah, I think the thing that was really exciting for me is this is one of the first chapters where Moraine and Tom are talking and we as readers are in on the subtext. I think there are places in earlier books where they are communicating with each other and we can tell that they're talking on some level that we don't fully understand, but there's no kind of decoder ring we have as opposed to this conversation where we get all of these really interesting bits of like, what does Moraine know that she doesn't think Tom knows? And what does Tom know that she doesn't think Moraine? Like there's all of these kind of knots being kind of tied and it works really effectively because so much of what's being done here is between what's being said, right? They're both being blackmailed simultaneously in this chapter. And you wouldn't know that just based on the facts that are coming out of their mouths. And I thought that was kind of really interesting and exciting. Um, I do also, just while we're talking about Moraine's heritage, want to highlight all of the Damadreds that we have had in this story, because it's a significant number of them. So Moraine Damadred, obviously we know. Uh, Lamin Damadred was the king of Kyrian who cut down the uh, Tree of Life, and therefore the Aiel uh, came over the, the spine of the world and began the Aiel War. We learned in this chapter that Elaine's father was also from Kyrian, was Terengale Damadred, and that he was married to Morgaze until, according to Moraine, uh, he was planning to kill Morgaze and then died under suspicious, possibly Tom-related circumstances. It should also be noted, in the previous book, there was the king of Kyrian who was opposed by another much uh, equally powerful noble who was of House Damadred and now potentially is in line for the throne because Tom killed his most powerful rival. So there's a lot of Damadreds, many of them possibly involved in murder related to Tom. That's just kind of the detail I wanted to pull out there. Is there anything in that that interests you? Or was there anything else in kind of Tom's backstory? I think if we're kind of saying we've, we've handled Moraine, what about the Tom half of this chapter? Was was intriguing. Well, just before we leave Maureen, are we to assume you just, I mean, it sounds like a pretty straightforward lineage that you described. So I, you're describing a good number, but this isn't like a widespread family, right? I, um, I believe yeah. everyone who I have just described would be within a first cousin or maybe first cousin once removed kind of relationship okay. or closer. Yeah. Uh, in Star Wars, uh, George Lucas just defaulted to Antilles when he couldn't think of anything else. So there are all these Antilles and you realize that's like the Smith of that galaxy because <laughs> there's really not that uh, family or something. So, OK, so so a big family in terms of 
heritage and significance more than size of yep. the, the group. Uh, well, and Tom, I felt like we knew most of this already, or yeah. we'd heard most of it via innuendo. So the the nephew that he wanted to protect, I mean, Maureen's kind of kind of a cruelty and just kind of plainly stating everything was kind of beautiful and delicious. And, yeah. you know, uh, I I can't help but see Rosamund Pike now and, and think of how she would deliver that tone and so on. But the way uh, she goes through that and makes it clear, however much he thinks he can hold over her, she's got equal footing with him. So don't yeah. try it, heart boy, right? Yeah, and I think the reaction, uh, Tom is kind of like trying to read her as he pulls out his kind of heavy hitter, big, scary facts. And the thing I think that shakes him the most is that she just kind of smiles and dismisses it. She's like, oh, yeah, you're right about all those things about my family. I just don't care about my family and doesn't let it impact her even a little bit. And then I thought that kind of came to a head at the very end of the chapter when Tom has the realization where he goes, oh, she just wants me separate from Rand. And I thought that that was a really interesting moment where he had been kind of knowing how she was attacking him all chapter. And the mystery he solved was why. And I thought that was really interesting, especially given that I'm not 100 percent confident that's actually the correct answer. Hmm. And so talk me through kind of maybe this is the piece I, I'm not entirely sure about is so mm -hmm. he well, I have like three questions involved in this. So you emphasize in your summary how strongly clear she was that he's going to not face harm in Tanchika. Yes. I hadn't thought of this when I read it, but now when you hit that so hard, I was like if she's that confident that it's not a lie, then she got the answer from the doors is what uh, probably like. I, I yeah. think you are on exactly the right track. I will only raise one kind of additional detail to complicate that, which is that yeah. she was equally confident earlier in the book before she went through the door that she knew the face of her husband. And I think our best hypothesis for that prior to her going through the door was like maybe it was a min thing or maybe it was a foretelling. But I think the door feels like it's a very likely culprit. But I do just want to complicate that with like, but she was also making these sort of semi-prophetic mm. statements even prior to going through the door. Yes. Uh, one second. Uh, Siri, set a reminder to record parody song, Nothing But a Min Thing. Uh, later tonight. All right, continue. <laughs> Honestly, in terms of this section, you've hit all of the kind of major, like, important points. There was only one other moment that really stood out to me from kind of a character perspective, which was early on in the section, right after uh, Tom arrives and is kind of trying to figure out what uh, Moraine is after, the first thing that she does is apologizes for the fact that there wasn't an Aes Sedai nearby when he was injured, and then she heals whatever she can in his knee, although he seems frustrated by by it because she doesn't ask his permission and that kind of like i'm really sorry let me do something nice to you but i'm also not going to treat you like a person while i do it felt like the most moraine thing i've ever heard and <laughs> felt like it needed a call out even if it wasn't an especially big moment 
I think that's a nice call out and it is people aren't people to her. They are pieces of a prophecy pieces that she's moving around a game board and yeah. she just needs to keep him moving. And, uh, you know, again, uh, less people think our opening suggested you're a bad DM. Uh, you always make it clear that we need to consent to somebody yeah. casting a spell on us or moving us or so on and so forth. Um, and uh, boy, it would have been nice if she had treated him with that dignity and respect in that particular moment. Um, so, Only so, five more books until we have the real discussion about consent in this series. Oh my it's goodness. coming. Uh, well, and so then, like, I think that plus the Tanchico question I asked yeah. uh, kind of folds into my last thought on this section, which is just like, it feels so Tom can't seem to escape this, right? He keeps yeah. wanting to leave this book and he keeps getting pulled back in. And the obvious answer for that is uh, Taviran. Yeah. But to me, this feels different. And so the way I might phrase this is, I think Tom could have left if Moraine didn't come get him. Yeah. And so if Moraine has to actively tip the scales in that way, it feels like he is of a different sort than what we're seeing elsewhere. And I yeah. don't know that I have an articulation of what that different sort is. It just feels significant that he's not just swept up in events, but really almost gets out before somebody has to actively pull him back in. Well, and I think it's so interesting that that seems to have been his role in the world for decades, right? It's not just that he is getting pulled on the eddies of Rand and the Tavir in this story. He's also been kind of prominent, but not actually influential in the Camelin court. And he's been, uh, you know, kind of part of the Gleeman, who we've kind of gotten all of these interesting kind of hints that they are just more informed and more involved in politics than you might otherwise suspect. Like this idea of Tom as being on the edge of the story, and that's kind of right where he belongs, I think is is really interesting and intriguing because it is it's different from the way that we're seeing all of the other characters feel kind of caught up in the whirlpool as opposed to Tom, who seems to be navigating the waters pretty well, but just wants to stay on the edge of it. Well, so I guess I'm also then thinking about Matt, who yeah. tries to leave, but like doesn't get this close. So so I like your 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 extension of the water metaphor is nice, right? That we're not caught up in the, the wake and the eddies, but he's really kind of far outside. Um, and so then I guess the only thing I have left to ask is like, why? Why does Maureen need him in here and involved yeah. in this? Everything we get about how worldly and how much expertise he has doesn't seem relevant to Tanchico, which I'm just going to keep saying Tanchico because it's kind of fun. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so why is it that we really need this figure here in this story? And yeah. what value does he bring? And I guess there's a little more of his backstory we could perhaps still learn. So maybe that answer will come. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing about this section is it just lays out an enormous number of facts to make sure that we remember them. And then we're still left not entirely understanding the motivation of either of the major characters yeah. in the section, which is, is kind of a fun game to play. Um, I say then we jump into the min section, which I'll be honest, the first half of it, I mostly enjoyed because I got some good chuckles out of it. Like min pretending to be ditzy in order to foil Gawain in ways that 
Gallon can't pick up on, but Gowan knows are meant to mock him. That is a game I could read 50 pages of, right? Give me Bridgerton <laughs> in the White Tower and I am on board. <laughs> uh I mean, I that is the most enjoyable part. I'm I, I am thinking a lot more about um, and we did this, I think, when they were introduced, but thinking of Sir Gowan, right? Um, yep. and Sir Gowan as a mythological character in the Arthurian court. As I recall, he lives his life in a circle, like a cycle, uh -huh. right? And so there's a way in which this feels that way, that that like these boys are stuck in a endless yeah. cycle and that nothing is really changing. And so, yeah, they just kind of go with Min because nothing's going to really change with her being in their story. They're yeah. going to read a book. They're going to do this and their their next day will just be the same as the day before. So, um uh, yeah, and and I already said my Mead Girls illusion, which is stop trying to make them a thing. Like yeah. I just I have no interest in them, so you know I pay careful attention. But it's it's curious that um, Mid is so deluded in those interactions, despite her outfoxing them, just by yeah. association. I'm like Mid, come on, you're better than this, even though she is clearly in control of that situation. Yeah, no, and I think that's exactly the right read is Min is just like running circles around these boys. But like, I think she's in exactly the same thing you're describing, right? They're stuck asking the same people for the same clues, hoping to, side, to solve a puzzle that they can't solve. But she's just as stuck, just looking at Aes Sedai, hoping a new vision appears to the point that later on in the chapter, she sees something that's not that important. And it's so exciting that she immediately runs off to the Merlin. Uh, yeah. But in that kind of thing you're describing, that sort of like cyclical green knight kind of like comes back to the same place over and over again. The the lesson that we've talked about a few times in the podcast is when you get caught in those cycles, you look really hard for what makes a thing different. And I think the way that we're used to seeing that story is there's something that gives you hope that things will get better in the future. But the big difference in this turn of these two characters is actually something bad that worries me about the characters, right? Galad reading books by the original creator of the White Cloaks is setting kind of a, a not great precedent for the direction that previously purely chased character could potentially be going in. And uh, this is just my poor memory. The White Cloaks are in no way tied to the crown. Correct. They are a separate entity even though there were white cloaks in that city or were yes. they they were outside so in that city that was the city where there were the red uh wrappings on the swords and the white wrappings on the swords and so the white wrappings were support for the white cloaks and a kind of desire to distance from the Aes Sedai and the red was kind of support for the queen in her current ties to the Aes Sedai and it was like 50 50 it seemed like it was kind of a city where that was one of the major conflicts was white cloaks or not and so to see Galad, who's been previously tied with the Queen and therefore theoretically the red side, kind of thinking about the white cloaks, I think you're right. It has a particular context with Camelot that we definitely need to be considering. Yeah, and I think so so trying to take your hint that like, yeah, well, what's different this time? So trending dark. Word. It seems yeah. to be the way to to suggest that you know there is a, a dark spin on them and a change in them. Still, kind of totally obsessed with the girls, right? Yep. And so that is not necessarily a change, but 
if you combine those two, that's particularly dark, right? Yeah. That they have real questioning of the actions of these girls, as well as that kind of dangerous incel love yeah. them but hate them energy um really makes me nervous for what that interaction is going to be like yeah i think nervous incel is not a bad description of how i feel about these two boys for most of the early section of the series i'm like please be a good guy please be a good guy please be a good guy and you can never quite tell with the white dudes um i i think to me between the jokes about Min being bad at embroidery and not knowing how to read and like the hints at Galad kind of changing his allegiance, I don't really see a ton else to dive into in the early part of the Min section, with maybe the exception being Gowan, who has literally given his life to defending his sister, seems unsure whether he is more worried about his sister or Egwene. And I know that We've talked before about Robert Jordan and his romance plot sometimes being two people saying, I think I might like you, and then deciding they like each other despite not interacting again. It kind <laughs> of feels like that's the direction at least Gowan is going relative to Egwene. Yeah, that's how I read it, too. Um, I don't know that I have a lot to add because it's not particularly thrilling as like a, you know, yeah. an expected literary device, but like that does seem the direction that's heading in. I mean, the only other thing I have noted in this is um Loghain continues to linger and yeah. um you know we've seen this again on the two strands of this program um where you know he's kind of he's starting to feel like Gollum to me like mm. his story should have been over but they're making it very clear that his story is not over and up until this point I thought that was he's a kind of refraction of Rand and the way this could go a warning off of of the direction this could go and now we see that there's triumph to come yeah. uh success to come and that's really curious to me um because i'm interested to see how he could be raised up again and by whom would he be raised up yeah and i think that's the the fascinating thing about this is I immediately agree with the a Merlin in the next section of the chapter. This feels like big news, but it's not big news that needed to be told immediately. Uh, that being said, how is the dominant question after this chapter, right? Um, we are kind of led to believe throughout this series that people who are gentled or stilled, like there is no future for them. And so the idea of him even surviving is, is, kind of outlandish, much less power and glory, I think are words that are used to describe this. And so um, I, I obviously can't say much more because I know how, but <laughs> I, I think that's, that's just kind of an exciting place to drop a little bomb like this in the middle of obviously everything else around it feels like it's just getting people to places. Yeah. Uh, and so then I think the next piece it's like, I, I will say the next two pieces together, my reaction was like, man, they're trying really hard to keep this a secret. That seems so unnecessary. And yep. then, oh, it was necessary because somebody is actively hunting them. So yep. uh, I think I assume you want to talk a little bit more about the two messages that the Amberlin seat received. But my takeaway here was the big thing is that they have not been keeping this secret enough and yeah. there are still black Aja at work. And so we get this little dangle of a mystery of somebody is still actively hunting 
Min and the Amberlin seed and trying to undo this. So um, yeah, what are some specifics I should think about instead of just jumping to those generalizations? Honestly, I think you hit the important stuff, right? I think we need to reach the point where we are comfortable with the name Mazrim Taim. I think he has kind of come up often enough and now is free that it seems like that's something interesting there. Second, tied to that, it's worth noting that the Black Aja who uh, Egwene and Nynaeve were interrogating claimed that their plan was to set Mazrim Taim free and then have him do atrocities in Randalthor's name. So we should be keeping an eye on whether that is the direction this goes or whether this may be coincidental that the Black Aja claimed they were going to set him free. Um, third, I just wanted to very quickly note um, both Min and Suan seem frustrated with the amount of information that Moraine is providing them. And so I think you're right to say there's something a little bit odd about it seeming like they are keeping things so secret. But if anything... It seems like Suwon isn't even completely in on how secret things are being kept, right? She is being kept on the outside just as much as others. Um, I don't have too much detail to throw in, but those were just other things that came to mind. Um, one more, which is a question mostly for people who have read the book before and less a question for you, but you can try to answer if you want, is why 12 Aes Sedai to go get Mazrum Taib? Because longtime book readers will know there is another logical number that is very close to 12 that seems like it deliberately wasn't chosen here. And I'm not sure why. Uh, feel free to answer that question on our social media in a way that Greg doesn't understand. Yeah, you're just in inviting my DMs to be even more inscrutable to me, uh, <laughs> which we got a text message the other day reacting to something we said probably only like three weeks ago. I'm like, I have no idea what we said into the yeah. microphone that long ago. Um, so, I mean, that's all I have for this chapter. And it sounds yeah. like you're wrapping it up. So I will say, you know, we talked about it more than I expected to. And I think that reinforces your initial theory of like, you know, there's there's some sparkle here. I guess that was my language for it. But yeah, good job, Greg. You really nailed it. Uh, that, you know, there's a little <laughs> more here than maybe first meets the eye. Um, but uh, certainly doesn't advance the plot significantly. Yeah. Maybe we should hear about what happens when we go into the ways. Chapter 18. That does sound like a good plan. And it also sounds like something that could be what happens when you go through the glass columns, but it's Ooh. not. We're not uh. quite there yet. Uh, chapter 18. Uh, Perrin gathers his weapons and his supplies, thinking that he doesn't like having to be bringing the axe, but he knows that it's necessary. Um, only Gaul is going to join him. Perrin had hoped that a number of other Aiel would also be going along. And so as a result, Perrin is kind of uh, dejected. He knows that it is unlikely that a a single Aiel will be able to turn the tide in the battle that he is expecting. Um, they make their way towards the stables, and once they are there, um, there is a, a couple of visitors who they don't expect. There are two Aiel, or two Aiel with Fail, that is Bane and Shiad. We learn that one of them is part of a clan that has a blood feud against Gaul's clan, and so there may be kind of a rivalry there. We also learn that Fail's uh, fight with Perrin seems to be the reason why Bane and Shiad were willing to come along. They kind of want to see how it plays out. Um, in addition, uh, there is kind of some sparring between all of them. The Aiel kind of telling a number of jokes, Gaul doing like a flip and some karate moves and talking up Perrin. 
Um, it's clear that we don't entirely understand Aiel culture. Um, Loyal is kind of rushing them along, saying that Fayil is impatient, and it's clear that Fayil is continuing to kind of enforce the rules about Perrin staying behind and not being able to actually go with them. Um, and Perrin is clearly just trying to ignore all of the jokes and all of the things that are being made at his expense. Um, Fayil eventually takes her time once everyone else is ready, mounts up, and then asks why Perrin can't just ask to come along. Um, the, at this point, the Stone of Tear actually shakes. It feels like there is an earthquake, and everyone begins riding off before Perrin can really answer the question. Um, Fayil goes along with it, and um, eventually they are. Uh, Perrin thinks that he is just try riding to try to escape Rand's pull. Um, eventually, when he is asked if it was Rand that caused the earthquake, he lies and says he he doesn't know, but he feels very confident that it was Rand. Um, at this point, uh, they realize they have left the Aiel behind, but in a very short period of time, the Aiel are able to catch up and make it clear that they believe that over long distances, they actually could keep up with a horse. And then we also get a number of jokes about maidens and stone dogs and what have you. Um, eventually, uh, Loyal leads them through what was once the grove and seems furious at the damage that has been done to all of the trees that were once in the grove. Eventually, they find the waygate. Once he uses the key, it startles Fayil and the Aiel. Perrin uh, eventually goes through first. Gaul follows afterwards, saying that Fayil was upset. And then Perrin decides that he is going to go inside of the ways to the first uh, of the guidings. And therefore, he can put a scare into Fayil. And he thinks that he wants to worry her, uh, to which uh, the response that Gaul gives is, it must be fun to be so young. And for the first time in my life reading this chapter, I kind of agreed with Gall. Aaron's pretty young in this one. Uh, <laughs> chapter 18, more than anything we've read so far, felt like a classic Robert Jordan, a character needs to be in a place and they are not there yet kind of chapter. Um, mm. Aaron got from A to, v, a to B very efficiently. Um, what were your thoughts on how he got there? Yeah, so I don't have a lot here, and I'm glad to hear you kind of reinforcing that. I because uh -huh. you know, well, I was gonna say when you are guessing about when I'll learn uh, through the glass columns, my new fear is that I'll like skim a paragraph too quickly and miss <laughs> it, and so we'll like be counting down, and I just will totally miss it. So, um, my main note here is just unrest in all dynamics. It's like take yeah. any of these characters and don't really have a healthy relationship at the moment. Now, you talked most in your summary about Gaul and Perrin, and they're probably closest, but it's not yeah. like they're they're buddies yet or, or, you know, really together together. It's more that they have found this allegiance of convenience kind of thing. Yeah, I do so. actually want to point out, Gaul refers to it in this chapter as a blood debt, right? At one right. point, Gaul was stuck in a cage and Karen let him out. I don't want to make too many Chewbacca references for those of you who aren't Star Wars fans, but we've seen this kind of trope before. Um, uh, that was my best Wookiee I have at this time of night. <laughs> Nine out of ten. Good work. <laughs> um, and then I was going to make a joke about how Solo screwed that up, but we have some listeners, or one in particular I know who really loves that movie, so I will uh, abstain from questioning it. Um, yeah, so, I, I mean, and you, you just noted this, like, the main thing here is that Perrin doesn't know how to deal with Fayil. And yeah. I think I'm starting to be frustrated with how often he keeps just trying to outmaneuver her to protect her in a way yeah. she doesn't want. And um, 
I think the final thought that you gave, which is let's just remember he's a young guy trying to figure this out. I mean, totally. And that totally works, but it is frustrating to want him to kind of mature faster than he has. Yeah, I think that the fact that it is Gaul who is thinking that Perrin is so young is really funny because I don't think Gaul is actually that old, right? He's maybe in like his mid-20s, but it's like the grad student looking at the undergrad and just being like, oh, what a baby. And the professors are over here like, what are you talking about? That's kind of where I'm at, right? Perrin is immature even from an immature person's perspective, and that is really realistic but this is probably the chapter out of maybe all of them that i am just the most frustrated by parent just say i'm sorry can i come with you and a lot of problems would immediately be solved and i know that's not how 17 year olds work but wouldn't it be Mm. just this once um and so then I did make note of the fact that Rand does seem to be holding his big meeting and Mm -hmm. it's like, that's where I want the camera to go. And Perry's just like, thank goodness I can sneak out while the big meetings. I was like, no, like I want to go to the big meeting. And and so I'm hoping we'll get those chapters, but at least it's happening. So somebody knows what we're about to be doing and about to be seeing um, as a part of this, but then that's really all I have in my notes. So what else did I miss or, is it time to say those words? <laughs> now, I've got a couple of, like, small details that I think are worth the, like, did that stand out or, like, what about this is interesting to you. Um, but nothing major, right? I think this is the, like, night to F3 chapter, right? It needs to get a person to a place. Uh, first detail that I thought was interesting, um, Bayil suddenly has more Ayil friends than Perrin does. And... It seems to be, uh, it, there's something in Aiel culture, it seems like, about wanting to go home. It seems like all of the other Aiel turned down Gaul's offer because they wanted to go back to the Aiel waste. And so this idea that Gaul didn't, because he had a blood feud, or uh, uh, I'm sorry, a blood debt, makes me really wonder what were Bane and Shiad's reasons. Because Gaul kind of response of like, oh, they just want to see Fayil win this argument with you, that doesn't feel like it holds water to me when I really sit down and think, like, why would these two people stay away from home for so much longer than they otherwise would? Yes. Well, and the other thing I wanted to ask about is it does seem like they are much more attached to the female characters, right? Is this something that we we should be seeing that they, they value? I mean... The show is also giving us many more female warriors that not that we're watching the show. I mean, that's a secret, but, uh, you know, so I feel like we're seeing more and more Aiel women and they are locked on to the women more. I mean, I guess like 12 of them slept with Matt, we know, but like, it just feels like that's also a part of this, right? Like they, they are more interested in Fahil because she's a a woman. I mean, we are also just talking about how terrible parent is. So maybe that's a part of it too, as it were. Well, Um, I think, I think culturally there's, there's a difference there, right? Because in uh, the Western part of the continent, you know, where most of the characters are from, it seems like women in combat isn't really a thing, right? Every soldier, every guard that we've encountered has been male. And so the fact that the maidens of the spear exist, I think is a reason to shine a bit of a light on female warriors in the Aiel. They don't exist elsewhere, but I think you're also right to point out that might be why they're especially kind of drawn to Fahil. She is 
what probably the only woman they've encountered who carries knives and feels like she knows how she could handle herself in combat other than Aes Sedai. So I think that's a really good point to identify that she is the one who seems to be drawing that attention. And it may literally just be as simple as being one of the few warrior women in the West. Hmm. Um, and then, well, I said I was out of things, but uh, Loyal being sad about how yeah. the Grove is gone, like, you know, there's a very, there are many, but quite a few uh, very famous readings of Tolkien as environmental criticism, yeah. right? Like, and so it started to feel that kind of vibe of Treebeard entering into Isengard, for example, and mm -hmm. and lamenting the destruction of the, the great forest of Fangorn. And he, it's, it's a different kind of vibe though because he's kind of if i read it right it's like he doesn't mind if it's destroyed to create great works but there's just nothing here right yeah. this is just farmland and that's what's offensive <laughs> yeah i i think the way that i read it was him being like this is horrific and in other places, the horrific was done in the name of something, which is reason. which yeah. is awful. But at least you can understand it. And okay. this felt like the the kind of banality of just like we cut down the trees because we didn't want the trees feels somehow worse than we cut down the trees to build a palace. And I don't always agree with that line of logic, but it just feels true when it's coming from Loyal. Uh, I also just wanted to highlight when this kind of happens, Heron immediately recounts like two or three phrases he've he he's heard in folklore of like, you don't want to make an Ogier angry or you wouldn't like mm. it when the Ogier, like <laughs> it's, it's very hulky the way that it's described. And it really kind of makes me curious. This feels like another place where Robert Jordan is kind of setting up the lore in a way that you know how it's going to explode later. And now I want to see a really angry Ogier in battle at some point. It sounds like the ends again, right? Like yeah. totally works in that same way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, anything else on Loyal's Fury? Because I only have one more thing. No, you've tapped out my notes entirely. <laughs> Excellent. Um, the last thing that I wanted to note is just Karen. There, there's a moment that I was surprised by at the very end of the chapter where Perrin kind of admits to himself that he is doing things not anymore because it's in Fayil's best interest, but instead simply to kind of win the battle against Fayil, right? He kind of admits that, like, he's doing things in order to make her worry. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, I don't know if that rings true to this character as they had been, right? That feels like a step beyond the immature 17-year-old and into, like, a, a vindictive place that I feel like not all 17-year-olds go and I wouldn't expect Perrin to. Um, I'm curious whether you had that same read of, like, if this was Star Wars, I'd be thinking Dark Side. I don't know whether that was the vibe you got also, but it was just a little further than I expected this fight with Fayil to get pushed. Uh, I don't disagree. And what I'm linking it to is uh, the books have made it clear that the wolfiness is wolfiness, but also that people associate wolves with the dark one and yeah. the, the forces, the dark friends and, and so on. And so it makes me wonder if when you and I sit around and are like, oh, it's so cool that he's wolfy, we are underplaying 
when you become Wolfie, you are actually becoming darker and just kind of assuming, well, Perrin will be all right. He's a cool character. He's a cool guy. But yeah. that there is a real risk kind of upon us of, of the wolfiness having a greater effect is where I was thinking about it. Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable place to be is we should basically just put, be putting kind of a blinking red light every time that Perrin seems to kind of be slipping into dark thoughts right after all of the narration has been scent based, which we didn't mention much, but it is worth noting Heron's head is just a smellscape seems to be the way that Robert Jordan has, has kind of started to describe that wolfiness. I have no other big details. I am very excited for what is to come. Next week, we have two chapters, chapter 19, The Wave Dancer, and chapter 20, Winds Rising. And I'm not going to tell you whether we will find out what is through the glass columns, but I will tell you we get to do some ill-advised discussion of visual media on a non-visual podcast next week. It's been a long time. Yeah. Next week where? Next week where? Next week through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend the show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.